This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Oyster men in Florida and farmers in Georgia have been locked in a bitter argument over shared river resources for decades, and that battle reached the Supreme Court. The oystermen of Apalachicola Bay already live with the upheaval that the Georgia farmers fear. Their fishery collapsed in 2012 amid persistent drought and low water flow conditions. Florida's attorney, former Solicitor General Gregory Garr, asked the justices to cap Georgia's water use of a shared river basin. It's hard to imagine New England without lobsters or, say, the Chesapeake without crabs. But in effect, that's the future that Apalachicola now faces when it comes to its oysters and other species. But Chief Justice John Roberts wondered how to figure out who's responsible for the collapse of the fishery. The situation is like uh, that on Murder on the Orient Express. A a lot of things took a stab at the fishery, drought, uh, over-harvesting, Florida regulatory policies, but also lower salinity uh, that was caused by Georgia's use of the water. But you can't say that any one of those things is responsible for for killing the the, uh, fishery. The questions of other justices, like new justice Amy Coney Barrett, focused on the costs versus the environmental benefits. Let's just imagine that Georgia could take measures that cost less and help Georgia, help Florida preserve the Apalachicola oysters. How, how do we put a price on an environmental benefit like that? Joining me is Ryan Roberry, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. Ryan, some have called this a David versus Goliath fight. I mean, David versus Goliath in the sense that the David would be sort of the Apalachicola Bay oystermen and the oyster fisheries in the Apalachicola Bay. And the Goliath in the room is sort of all of the Georgia agricultural industries that draw water from these rivers. So if you look at it just myopically in those two senses, yes, it is a David and Goliath kind of situation. This dispute has been going on for decades. Explain it to us. Well, the dispute is simply Florida is claiming that uh, Georgia agricultural interests, so farms, are using too much water. And when they're using too much water, that water is not crossing the border into Florida and going down into the Apalachicola Bay, which is where the oysters are. And as a result, with not enough water, the oysters are suffering. Florida's attorney told the justices that denying relief would be a death sentence for Apalachicola. How so? For the Apalachicola Bay region, oysters and marine life They have been part and parcel of that region for, you know, several hundred years. So for that particular region, it is very important. There has been a drastic reduction in the numbers of oysters being pulled out of Apalachicola Bay in just less than a decade. I think the real challenge here is why? You know, is it due to a lack of water? Is it a question of over-harvesting of oysters? Explain what the arguments of the two states are here. Well, the argument from Florida's side is that essentially Georgia farmers are being wasteful with their water, that you have some farms that are not being permitted, that are irrigating. Uh, You have other farms that are perfectly fine and they are permitted, but they are not irrigating properly or, you know, using good conservation measures. And as a result, less water is coming down the river and into Florida. Georgia, on the other hand, would say that They have been using conservation measures to a great degree, and that one of the challenges is hydrological modeling is so imprecise about where all the water is going and how much water is going down, that really it's not a question of 
Georgia farmers using too much water. It's really a question of how much water is the Army Corps of Engineers, who controls the dams and sort of the flow of water, how much water should they be letting out at any one time? We're not sure what the root causes are of the lack of water from Florida's side. Georgia says it's not just them, that Florida bears some of the burden of this as well. And that was one of the challenges the justices were dealing with, was this conflicting evidence. This was at the court previously. Explain what happened last time it was at the court. It's been at the court multiple times. I mean, this is a multi-decade sort of piece of litigation. Last time at the court, there was a real question about what it was the role of the Army Corps of Engineers, which is sort of the federal agency that controls the dams along these rivers and the flows of water. And the real question was, what was the role of the Army Corps of Engineers in ensuring enough water across the border? The special master from last time, Special Master Lancaster, left open this question of harm, which was, was Georgia's lack of conservation measures, were they somehow harming Florida? And that's the question that really came to light this time, was that Florida says that Georgia is harming them and that the benefits of an apportionment decree or deciding on a number or amount of water that should cross the border, that that outweighs the harms that Georgia would suffer by the court creating such a decree. Chief Justice John Roberts compared this to the Agatha Christie murder (laughs) on the Orient Express. Well, he's actually used it before, if you go back. I mean, his question was all about causation. Florida claims Georgia is the primary cause behind there being having a lack of water. And so he was saying causation is a very tricky thing, and there can be multiple contributing factors to a cause. And much like murder on the Orient Express, where there were multiple stab wounds by all these different people, how can you say that Georgia is the primary cause here of the lack of water versus other types of reasons, such as evaporation, maybe a lack of conservation techniques on the part of Florida. So how can we really get to the point of saying Georgia is the cause, and therefore, if we deal with Georgia, we'll actually deal with the issue? Was there a concern that all the justices shared? Yes. I mean, one of the things they were all concerned with is how do you weigh, how do you balance the cost and benefit? So the legal argument here is that the Florida bears the burden of proof. They need to prove that the benefits of a decree would outweigh the harms. And so the justices were trying to drill down on how do you determine a cost-benefit analysis? Is it purely just economics? Is it how much do Georgia farmers produce versus the Apalachicola Bay oystermen? Or what about the ecosystem services that are involved in keeping Apalachicola Bay healthy and thriving? I mean, how do cost-benefit analyses work in a situation like this? And there was a lot of unsettlement. I feel about that. And and they're trying to flesh out how would a cost-benefit analysis work in a case like this. The downstream state usually has a high burden, doesn't it? Correct. What's the burden on Florida here? Clear and convincing evidence. And it's not really the downstream state, so it's the state that's suing. And that would be Florida in this case. So they had to prove by clear and convincing evidence that, again, the benefits that would accrue to them substantially outweigh the harm that any decree that the Supreme Court put in place would would harm Georgia. And that is a very tough burden to prove. And just from my basic read is I don't think Florida proved it. I do think there are some methods that Georgia could use to conserve more water, but I don't think that Florida was able to definitively say, well, yes, this is Georgia and here is why, because of all of these conflicting pieces of evidence that the justices pointed out. 
In 2018, the Supreme Court issued a 5-4 to four decision giving Florida another chance to make its case under a looser legal standard. So now you have two new justices in the mix, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. What did you hear from them during the arguments? Well, Kavanaugh's questions were really about the cost and benefit analysis. That's the sort of the legal standard is the cost-benefit analysis. How do you determine what goes into that calculus? Um, Barrett, her question was somewhat related, but it's a question of harm. You know, how do we calculate ecosystem harms? It's not just about oysters, but it's also about something broader than that. Again, this whole question of cost-benefit analysis and what are the factors that go into those variables that will get you the answer, those are the undecided questions. And so I don't think they tip their hand in any way at the end of the day. I think they're really struggling through a very difficult, complex question of what values do we consider valuable enough to protect and what values not. It seems like it would be a surprise if Florida won this. That's my read. From everything I can see at this point, it would be a surprise to me if Florida were to win this as well. I just didn't see enough evidence. And a lot of the evidence, as the justices pointed out, was conflicting. And so now what do justices do with scientific evidence that is conflicting? You know, should they act more conservatively or proactively? And so I tend to think Florida will probably not win this case. Another high-stakes water dispute is advancing in the Supreme Court between Mississippi and Tennessee. Do you think that with climate change, we're going to see more of these water disputes in the future? I think in the next 10 to 20 years, and that's the other piece of the issue, is if the court sets an apportionment decree, will the number, so apportionment essentially means a certain amount of number must flow across the borders, will those numbers change in 10 to 20 years, and do these numbers make sense, or do we need a more flexible mechanism to deal with water flow between states? I would venture to say in the next 10 to 20 years, you will see more eastern state water disputes than you've hitherto seen because of climate change. Aside from the legalities, it's quite sad to see what's happened to Apalachicola. Yeah, no, I mean, I've been to Apalachicola several times. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous, and it is an unbelievable estuary and incredibly productive. And I think the real question here is water conservation and water management. This is something that has been dealt with in the West a lot more than the East because the West, that's where I come from, the West has water scarcity built in because of its desert climate. The East relies on a reasonable use standard, which has never really been problematic when it rains. Now we're getting to a point of climate uncertainty. And so I think it really comes down to now more stringent and effective water management techniques. So I don't believe necessarily the bay will dry up and disappear, but it does probably mean some change in water regulation. Thanks, Ryan. That's Ryan Roberry, professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. As a growing number of cities pass mandates for hikes in pay for frontline workers due to COVID-19, big grocery store chains are wielding largely untested legal arguments to fight the pay hikes. Joining me is Aaron Mulvaney, senior legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. Aaron, tell us about these hazard pay laws. So as COVID-19 kind of spread across the United States, a lot of retail um, companies initially in the early days of the pandemic um, offered a pay boost to their workers who were kind of on the front lines, like, you know, your grocery store clerks and things like that. And so that actually kind of tapered off um, toward the middle of the summer, you know, that was kind of being pulled back a little bit by some of the stores, um, not across the board. But so then 
recently, this this year, there's been a string of cities that have passed mandates for certain stores to boost pay of the the workers in the front lines. And so that is different because it's not a voluntary thing that the stores are doing, but these local governments, mostly in California, but um, the other big city I would know would be Seattle, have been passing these mandates to pay um, workers more. Are these just for a certain time until the pandemic ends? I mean, what are the sort of terms of the laws? Right. The laws do vary um, in these kind of local governments because they're all, you know, in different city um, city councils are passing them. So they, they kind of range between either a, between a 4 and $5 pay boost. And some are pretty broad. Like in Seattle, it's until the end of COVID-19 is what it says. And in other cities in California, it could be 120 days, 180 days. Um, so they kind of vary um, how long they, they last. Grocery stores supposedly are doing very well during the pandemic. Is there an element of they're doing well, they can pay their workers more? Well, that would definitely be an argument that a lot of the workers and their union representatives would make that the the grocery stores have done so well and, you know, um, cited record profits um, during the pandemic. And so they should be able to pay the people who are kind of putting their lives at risk and getting sick. And, you know, there have been a, there's been a large number of infections in the food industry. So I think that's kind of the backdrop here for why these cities kind of thought that this was an appropriate thing to do for these workers. So who's suing and what are the allegations? So that's where it gets kind of specific because these these ordinances, I should say, mostly target large grocers. So grocery associations are driving the lawsuits filed against the mandates themselves because they they have a couple arguments. They they argue that first of all, equal protection under the law, they aren't being treated the same as other um, other types of industries and other types that are also kind of putting frontline workers on the line. And, and of course, they do vary. You know, in, in some cases, pharmacies are targeted. In some cases, you know, farm workers are targeted under these mandates. But it really is directed mostly at the grocery chain. And, we're, and it's also interesting because the other thing, these lawsuits, and I, I use the term lawsuits very broadly because they all are filed by the same group for the most part, and they have very similar allegations. And the other allegation besides equal protection is that they're saying that the federal law that governs kind of negotiations between unions and businesses, the National Labor Relations Act, they're saying that that should preempt these states from interfering and and giving, um, and when I say states, these cities from interfering and giving pay boosts to these workers because that should be something that's negotiated between the union and the business itself. Well, well let's talk about the, the union. What has the union's role been in these laws? I, since they've mostly been happening in California, I can say that we they had a pretty fierce negotiation. There were kind of talks, you know, in that summer months where they were kind of looking for better pay for their workers with um, the, the grocery chains and trying to get some of these hazard pay, um, these hazard pay bonuses in the, for the workers without 
a mandate without a local government. And then they shifted gears and they started lobbying local governments to mandate the hazard pay. So, so union officials have openly said that, you know, they kind of shifted their resources and efforts to kind of pushing for the local government to, to mandate the pay. What is the allegation of damages in these lawsuits? Well, the grocery associations essentially want the hazard pay ordinance to be ruled unconstitutional and to stop um, the governments from passing these ordinances because they are kind of catching fire around um, California. Um, for example, there's one proposed in LA, which would be a huge, um, a huge thing for for pay and grocery workers and a lot of costs for the businesses. Legal experts that you talk to, what are they saying about the allegations? Do they have a good case? The legal experts say that these are difficult arguments to make. But what's interesting is they're they're somewhat novel arguments because they it's not unheard of that a business would challenge a local government um, for something like this when, for example, like the minimum wage ordinance in Seattle was charged when that was the first. Um, big $15 minimum wage hike in the country in 2014. And, you know, that was challenged. But this is kind of, this is different because it would, it would test this question mostly about the National Labor Relations Act and its power um, over city government's decisions because, and and whether it can interfere with these kind of union talks. Um, And, I think the the hurdle is very high for the equal protection, you know, whether it's fair or not for retail stores to be targeted, for example. Um, the legal experts I talk to who represent employers mostly say that it, it really is a pretty steep, or it's a difficult argument to make um, because a lot of courts will defer to the local governments themselves to be the ones who make the decisions about what's best for the law. And so I, I think what's the most untested is this battle between um, the the unions and the businesses and how powerful that is. So maybe, you know, one lawyer told me, for example, that maybe the unionized workers who are getting this pay bump are the ones, or in those cases, that's where the argument is the strongest. But it's very untested. So they were acknowledging that we don't really know what courts will do here. Are most grocery workers unionized? The union is pretty strong in California. I, I don't know the percentage of workers that are unionized, but they they do represent, you know, thousands of workers in California and in Washington. Those are pretty strong union states. Let's talk about the equal protection. These laws have only targeted groceries, retail chains. Many of them are targeted to large grocery stores specifically, but there are a few ordinate they all vary, of course, because they're you know, passed by these individual local governments. A few do target um, other industries as well, including pharmacies. Um, one city boosted hazard pay for farm workers. But but yes, large grocery stores are the main target here. Yeah, I'm just, I'm curious as to why other essential workers, you know, you mentioned farm workers and why they haven't been targeted for these kinds of laws. Right, right. I think that you, that's, what the grocery association um, is arguing as well. And they, they point to um, pretty high minimum wages and kind of average pay for these workers. And, you know, this would represent a 25% pay bump. And they 
pretty much say that the reason is that the union lobbied, the, the grocery union lobbied um, for this change. And so um, it's not clear to me why some places um, thought that this was the most appropriate uh, area to boost, you know, but I think that the union itself points to infections and deaths in the food industry. Um, but you make a good point because I think a lot of those have come from the meat packing plants as well and, and those kind of industries and they weren't necessarily targeted in these ordinances so far. It's interesting because, you know, you have the NLRB argument, but you have the union that caused laws to be passed. And so it seems like, like the, the whole area is a muddle sort of. Right. It, it's interesting because I actually read the lawsuit at first and was a little confused. But the, the, the National Labor Relations Act is a neutral law. It's not necessarily pro-worker. It's, it's supposed to just govern the, the activity between businesses and unions. But I did have one lawyer who, um, who said it's interesting to see, you know, these businesses leveraging a union law against unions essentially to your point um so another interesting thing is i mean lawsuits take a long time and hopefully the pandemic will be over but will it be over before the lawsuits end well that that is why i think a lot of these lawsuits are pushing for um, emergency measures which do do act quicker than the typical lawsuit where they're filing um injunctions, which are asking courts to kind of weigh in quickly. And like you said, because of, you know, the, from their perspective, the, the, the quick turnaround they need to stop the law from taking effect. Do you have any idea when we'll hear about the first injunction? Is it coming up soon? There are some hearings in some of the first courts that have had these lawsuits. So we'll find out pretty soon how courts are going to rule on them. Thanks, Aaron. That's Aaron Mulvaney, senior legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. This is Bloomberg.